This is Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. Today, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with Pamela McCordick. Pamela is an American author, but she's much more than that. She has had personal inquiries into the history and philosophical significance of artificial intelligence, the future of engineering, and the role of women in technology. This is such a cool talk. I have a chance to learn about how the founding fathers of this field of artificial intelligence worked, what their philosophies were, and I think much more importantly, the way Pamela views the past, the present, and looking into the future. Through her literary work, she has spent much time interviewing all of these figures um, from what has been famously called the AI school from the 1956 Dartmouth Summer Workshop. She's written the books Machines Who Think in 1979, The Fifth Generation in 1983 with Ed Feigenbaum, the artist, The Edge of Chaos, The Future of Women, and many more. In fact, as you'll hear in this interview, she has another novel that she is working on right now that we all look forward to reading. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Pamela, thank you for for meeting with me today, even at a distance. My pleasure. Uh, It's, you know, um, I've been following your work for years and you know I'm interested in so many things uh but I I have I'm always want to know how you get started you know it's not necessarily what career you end in but what makes you inspired to get into that particular thing what happened was I was working my way through college at the University of California at Berkeley And two young assistant professors came to me. This was in the business school. I was a literature major, and they figured, you know, working in the business school, I wouldn't be tempted to share exams or anything like that. Anyway, uh, these two young assistant professors came to me, and they said, we know you're graduating in January, and you want to go to graduate school in the fall. Uh, Would you like to work on our book in that nine months that you're off? And I said very enthusiastically, yes. What's it about? <laughs> and they said, well, artificial intelligence. And I had heard the term because I had been working in the, the school. And I said, well, you know, could you tell me what that is? And I got one of them, a guy named Ed Feigenbaum, who later went on to be not only my, my dear, dear friend, but also uh, a professor at Stanford, said, well, artificial intelligence is machines doing something that if humans did them, we'd say, Oh, that's intelligent behavior. And, you know, it was a a pretty good definition. So I did work on that book. It turned out to be the first book of readings in artificial intelligence. And when it was finished, I went away. But uh, I I didn't go to graduate school just then. And the bug had really bitten me. And I used to call Ed maybe every six months or so and say, Oh, what's new in AI? And then two years later, he called me and he said, I've moved to Stanford and I need an assistant. Would you like to come down and be my assistant? I, I was still in Berkeley. And I said, I'd love to. I, I knew this would be great fun. And that's exactly what it was. And that was the beginning. What were you, as a literature major, what, were you, what did you love at the time? I mean, pre-meeting Ed. I loved everything. I mean, yeah. uh, particularly 
very fond of the 19th century novelists, English and French, and to some extent Russian. Uh, you know, just yeah. nothing, nothing spectacular or surprising, just what you think. Uh, very much prose, not poetry, like that. And it was much later when I decided to do this history of AI, which was called Machines Who Think, I thought, well, you know, how far back does this go? Well, ta-da, it went back as far as Homer in Western civilization, which stunned me. So I constructed the book to read as this is the scientific realization of a theme that has preoccupied us through all of Western civilization. It later turned out that the same theme appears in uh, Asian civilization too, but I didn't know that then. And this is the theme of really superintelligence, something that is beyond no, us or like us? More like intelligence outside the human cranium. Right. Now, you must remember, this is the first, the late 60s, early 70s. Nobody thought about anything having intelligence besides humans. We didn't think about cetaceans having intelligence or cells having intelligence or any such thing like that. Intelligence was what humans had, and that was our distinguishing feature. Well, we've grown up a lot since then, and what do you know? But uh, that was the prevailing theme, and that, that was certainly the theme to continue through literature. So there was, if I think about the school of these early, and I'm going to school of these early pioneers in the field, uh, and I think about current pioneers in the field too, they come from really different backgrounds. I mean, there's cognitive scientists, there's neuroscientists, there's comp sci people. Did you notice, I mean, you worked with Minsky, you worked with Feidelberg, you worked with McCarthy. Did they come from different backgrounds and did you notice a different way in which they approach things? Sure. Um, Newell and Simon, for, for example, were psychologists, cognitive psychologists. They wanted to know how the brain thinks. And that was what drove them. Um, Minsky was more or less on that, uh, that wavelength, but Minsky was much more speculative, uh, you know, as you probably know. An, I think of him as an inventor. He's been a great hero of mine. But, you know, uh, uh, I always think of Minsky as the, you know, where you're talking about this sort of reverse engineering of the brain in a sense that these other guys were doing, right? say that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, McCarthy was a mathematician a very austere mathematician, and he really wanted thinking to be expressed in logical theorems. Is that type of, is that similar to a type of reductionism that a cognitive psychologist would not have? Is that, especially at the time when those things were not put together in that same way? Uh, let's say that McCarthy's approach didn't go very far. <laughs> okay, makes sense. Well, what you know, you, you have something interesting in the front matter of machines. You think you you quote this sort of famous Einstein quote that everything should be made simple as possible, but not simpler. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that that's sort of what you start this. Can you explain what that means for humans building artificial intelligence? In retrospect, I mean, how old is that book now? Forty years old. What I meant, what I took Einstein to mean was that you need not elaborate on things. If you can get it done just right, a sort of Occam's razor approach, 
than good enough. Uh, what we're finding out is that cognition is hugely complex. So simple as possible turns out to be not simple at all. Well, I mean, do you think, do you think that that, that was the view of uh, these early AI researchers, that it would be simpler than it turned out to be as far as the science of intelligence? Yeah, sure. I think they really thought that if they could just have um, a proof of concept, so to speak, that's it. They could just elaborate on that endlessly. Well, that's not how it turns out, because it turns out cognition has all kinds of styles and all kinds of purposes in the same cognitive system, and some of them uh, enhance each other. So, yeah, but they were miles ahead of cognitive psychologists around them who thought it was stimulus response, or it was getting through the maze, or whatever nonsense prevailed just then. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's kind of the reverse path. It just occurred to me that you know you Freud went from you know wanting to study what was neuroscience at the time, which was very you know very basic in his time, to you know taking you know this you know step back and and then saying well I have to figure out the way human behavior works through through therapy. It almost feels like it's taking the opposite approach in in artificial intelligence, where we become more and more granular in trying to understand maybe the way the neocortex works versus the way motor neurons work and so on. I I wonder if that's just the way fields evolve over time. That's a very good observation. And I think you're right. This is how the fields evolve. You can make these long, wonderful generalizations, and then you have to support it with a working program. And guess what? You have to get granular to get a work a working program. Yeah, I only knew um, Marvin Minsky a very little bit late in his life, and um, he was, you know, through his work, his great influence on me, having not known him. But by the time I met him, he was I don't know skeptical about the progress of AI. Um, And when I hear you speak, not just now, but when I've read your work or heard you on other interviews, you seem incredibly optimistic in a way. Do you know, can you trace sort of a history of why why Marvin, who was doing the work at the time, would become a bit disillusioned with the work and why you remain so hopeful? I I saw Marvin maybe face to face a year before he died. Yeah, me too. And... I would not characterize him as disillusioned, but I would certainly say he understood how hard the problem was. And I was very interested in the work of one of his students who went on to be distinguished in his own right, Patrick Winston. Oh, yes. And Pat was a bubble of enthusiasm and optimism till the day he died. I guess... I can see Pat was looking at a big picture, but he was doing it in a very granular way. And he never took his eye off the prize, but he knew that it had to be done from the bottom up. So, yeah. And he didn't live to see it happen. Project has gone on without him. Yeah. I mean, I also didn't, I I said that wrong. I wouldn't necessarily say disillusion. If I were to think about it, it would be more fear of hype in a sense. 
um, you know, or, or uh, you know, and I don't mind hype in some regards. It's what inspires us. You know, you could say that, uh, you know, Homer or Star Trek are hype in a way for what <laughs> what, what is possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but I can understand where, you know, expectations in his career, you know, what people thought would, you know, he should have achieved could be frustrating. But he kept inventing till he died. I mean, I, it, it, he was a brilliant guy. He really was. And, you know, at one point he actually considered dropping it all and being a full-time composer, musical composer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I play music and that was one of the things he, I, I mean, we, we talked about that. We talked about music more than we talked about AI <laughs> because I actually did, don't have an AI background. Um, I'm, a, I'm a material scientist and a, a jazz piano player. So I, I, I was too embarrassed to talk to him about much <laughs> oh, too deep. But, uh, oh, I'm sure you made him very happy talking about music. Oh, man, he was so, he's so great. I heard you say that you don't believe that there was an AI winter. I, I mean, I, I tend to, I think I get what you mean, but can you explain a little bit? Sure. Uh, we've heard the phrase AI winter starting sometime in the early 80s, I think. And what that said was, the hype has been so great that the funding agencies are stepping back and they're not going to support AI anymore. And somehow during this so-called winter, which I will go get back to in a moment, uh, the seeds germinated and a spring came along a few years later, blah, blah, blah. Well, I wondered about that. And first of all, I looked and saw where funding levels were in the 80s. And they were pretty much the same as they'd been all along. They weren't fabulous, but they were okay. And I looked at the publications in the 80s, one by one by one. They were so fundamental, Matthew, to what AI would become. And so what we're really talking about is the venture capitalists. We're not talking about the reality of the science. And the venture capitalists are saying, I can't make money on this. Forget it. You know, it's dead. It's winter. It was a and commercial winter, not a scientific winter. It was a commercial winter. Ah. And interestingly, uh, you all, we all know about machine learning being so everywhere you look. Well, most of that work was done in the mid-80s. And it yeah, wasn't... like Jeffrey Hinton's work yes. and yeah, Schmidt exactly. Huber and these exactly. guys. Yeah. And that couldn't be realized until the technology was such that it could be realized. And that was only in uh, this, this century. So, yes, I'm, I'm hugely skeptical about the notion of an AI winter. Well... <laughs> You, you're skeptical. I mean, I'm saying this only because I heard you say it before. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Um, a, a bit about the idea of commerce versus science, and I kind of hear that in what you're saying here. Which do you think that there? Do you think that let's say from 2013 to yeah. now, um, do you think that there has been a positive role of commerce or venture capital or, com you know, whatever that might be outside of academia that has pushed some of those 1980s ideas forward? Have there been 
scientific discoveries because of commerce? I can't speak to that, really. What I can say is I'm all for commerce. Uh, I'm like Elizabeth Warren. I'm a deep, I'm a deep down capitalist. Uh, but don't confuse the issues. You know, Silicon Valley, I'm just a few miles from Silicon Valley right now, is full of libertarians who think uh, the government has no business in their lives. And I think you would not be, you would not have a living if the government had not invested in the internet and artificial intelligence at rates that no venture capitalist would tolerate because they weren't getting returns for 20 years, 30 years. Right. And it's a problem in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley drives me crazy. No offense to where you live, but you're saying the same thing in a way that it's it's only after something. And I don't think this was always true. I mean, somebody funded Intel, you know, you know, Rock funded Intel. I mean, it was important. But now it's it seems like, you know, there's some ad tech consumer app that will go, you know, that's a that is not exactly technology. And until you can show what that fundamental growth is, it's not uh, fundable. So certainly there was, there needs to be this foundational work that happens before, which is what you got to witness most of your life, I guess. Yes, right. And, and began to honor in a way. Honor, that, yeah. Uh, perhaps shows in my, my gritted teeth about <laughs> the venture capital. Well, I know I'm gritting mine too. And I shouldn't, I mean, I'm, I, I have, I'm a CEO of a venture funded company, but, <laughs> but it's been, it's been damn hard working on it. <laughs> so, no, no question. No question. We have seen what I would consider breakthroughs and that you would consider making it way into the public. Do you think that there is a large hardware component to what happened in recent years that allowed um, some of the more algorithmic ideas of the past? I think there is a large uh, hardware component and, and yay for the engineers. Those guys have just pushed it. They have just pushed it marvelously. You have talked about, I think you call it the male gaze. Oh. Right. And I don't think anybody had read that. <laughs> it stuck with me. Well, one thing, I have a friend who's a, who's a filmmaker, and he was asked to write a book for kids about uh, how to start to learn to love cinema. And he found that he couldn't write this book because everything in, <laughs> in cinema turned out to either be sexist or racist, if you go back, at least from a modern perspective. I mean, you have Harpo chasing around girls. I mean, this is sort of, and I, I, well, that was interesting. And then, and then I look and you, you're talking about the, the, the male gaze. Can you talk, talk a little bit about that to me, um, both from you know, how that relates to cinema and then actually how it relates to maybe our fear of AI? This came about because I was sitting having a glass of wine. It may have been two glasses of wine with a, an artist called Harold Cohen. I was doing oh, a yeah. book on him. And uh, he was interesting to me because he used AI techniques to produce art. That's another story. And he said to me, Pamela, what, what grabbed you about this stuff? And I said, well, you know, really interesting rock to turn over. What could be more interesting than intelligence in any shape or form? And I guess, and I heard these words coming out of my mouth, and I knew they were true, but it scared the wits out of me. And I wanted to see that intelligence was not 
um, exclusively male. Well, he roared with laughter and I said, what did I say? Uh, but I went back home and I thought about it and I thought, yes, that has been an unconscious wish of mine for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, maybe it was. That suddenly brought to mind the wonderful essay about the male gaze in cinema. I'm sorry, I don't remember the author's name at the moment. I, this woman looked at cinema as we know it. And I think the essay was published in the 70s. And she said, it is all about the male gaze. That is to say, women in these movies are objects, not subjects. Uh, everything about them is how they relate to males. And she goes on a great, great length, and any of your listeners can read it, and I recommend it. And as I read the essay, I, I reread it, I must have read it when it was first out, uh, I began to laugh because everything she said about the male gaze with regard to women could be said about the male gaze with regard to intelligence. Uh, anything that had intelligence that wasn't a human male was, by definition, a bad thing, threatening, so on and so forth. Well, this was just about the time that a bunch of people, males, uh, like Elon Musk, like uh, Stephen Hawking, were telling us how you know AI was going to eat our lunch and us afterwards. And I thought, oh, that's what this is. Okay, okay, it all comes clear. Uh, just they were afraid of their own masculinity. That men were no longer the top of the pyramid. The uh, frankly, or as I said to my girlfriends, hey, these guys have always been the smartest guy on the block. Now something's coming along that might be smarter. Kill it in its cradle. I, I exaggerate, but that's essentially, well, I didn't exaggerate. I said that to my friends and they laughed and they said, yeah, you're right. Okay. So that's why I juxtapose the male gaze in cinema onto the male gaze in AI. I mean, you don't hear women running around saying, oh, AI is going to kill me. That's true. I was trying to think of any I know that are, are terrified of, of yeah, no. that's, a, that's a good point. <laughs> I certainly hadn't thought about it. And, I, I, and it, it's something that I'm not sure that is, I, I actually there's something very practical about thinking about that, not just an observation. Um, I. I often, you know, I, I, you know, work in a tech company, but I, I'll, I'll, you know, I also visit a lot of tech companies or research labs for that matter. I mean, it's not just commerce. Those, many times I worry about if you are going to create something that borderlines into human intelligence and maybe in many areas, as we've seen already, certain areas, it surpasses human intelligence, um, you know, whether it's a calculator or whether it can play Go better than a human, right. that there is something about, there's a, to me, is there, do you, or do you think there's a little bit of a risk that when you walk into these rooms, it's a bunch of white guys that are in their late 20s that are creating the algorithms, which, I mean, and I'm not saying this from a total existential threat perspective, because I get your point of, you know, oh, oh, are we scared that we're going to get taken over? But maybe there is something to that. Right, it, like who dominates the algorithm in the end might dominate the intelligence that they're creating. Do you have, you ever think that? Sure. 
uh, I think about it. I, I don't worry about it. Uh, and yes, I understand what you're saying about the 25 year olds, the 28 year olds. I know. It's just uh, as I get old, I, I, I maybe you know I, that age will change as I. Those 28 year olds are going to get older too, mm. and that will mellow them out quite a bit. You don't worry about it. Oh, there's some things I do worry about. Yeah. Okay, what do you worry about? Here? Deep fakes. Oh, deep fakes. Oh, yes. You've given yeah. the propensity of this country to believe in any nonsense that comes their way. You could make a deep fake to say anything you want. And as the old saying goes, by the time truth gets its boots on, the lie is halfway around the world. And we aren't very good yet. We will be, but we aren't very good yet at touching, at exposing those deep fakes fast enough. And uh, that's worrisome, especially given the uh, mental acuity of my fellow Americans. That's one thing I worry about. The other thing I worry about is a little more subtle. Both at Caltech and at the University of California, San Francisco, which is the medical school, uh, they are doing some fabulous work for paraplegics. They are fitting. Uh, readers, if you might say, to the brains of paraplegics so that paraplegics can lift a, uh, an artificial arm or lift an artificial leg, so on and so forth. Wow, who could be against that? And yet step back. This is reading your mind. Right. You can see the possibilities for abuse. For sure. I mean, it's it's the same. It's not the same, but we see that right now. Um, we're going through a global pandemic and mm -hmm. things that were that even a year ago, people could have been outraged as being a surveillance state or looked at as a way to protect, uh, you know, do contact tracing, that's, protect that's right. us from getting a uh, getting a disease. So we've kind of let our guard down in order for something that is positive. I mean, I, that, that's an interesting ethical challenge that we're faced, I guess, with. It certainly is. But Matthew, we're always trading off. Sure, yeah. Oh, no, you, no. I'm, you I'm carry a credit card and your credit card company knows every breath you take. Are you worried about surveillance? Me personally, no. <laughs> I, love you, I love how you express something that scares the hell out of me and then say you're not worried about it. No, it's the third time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, this comes from being a, a 79 year old woman who does not live an exciting life. <laughs> there will be a time, and there was a time in my life when I would have been very upset. Okay. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> well, I. I have a actually much less dangerous <laughs> fear, but I'd love to get your take on, it. especially you said you were, you know, the book you did with Harold, and the, you know, this idea of uh, AI and art and, mm. you know, literature. Um, and, and right now, by the way, um, for those of those that don't know, of course you do, there's just as of last week, uh, OpenAI came out with uh, GPT-3, which is, as close to a written kind of communicative uh, general AI that exists to date. Um, I, you know, there's plenty of reasons to think it's not as far as you could go, but it's to date pretty impressive. Um, what do you think, do you think that we are at the point 
or we will ever be at the point where artificial intelligence will be able to create art as a human does. With some reservations, yes, we will. Um, Would you want it to? I guess I feel about that the way I feel about having other intelligences around. I think it would be interesting. That's cool. I, you know, maybe I have to stop fighting for, I, I always, I'm so unbelievably positive about what AI could achieve, whether it was work with paraplegics or whether it's, you know, I work on, you know, the ability to make new things faster, you know, all of the, yeah. you know, all the things I think AI has great potential for, but I, for some reason, I've wanted to hold on to human creativity and the arts and in, in a way that maybe I'm being, you know, I, I, I get, I get it. It would be interesting to see a new type of creativity in the world like that. Well, it, it, this is a, analogous to what people used to say to me years ago, which is, how would you feel if something was more intelligent than you? And I would think, I, I see it every day. I mean, I knew Herb Simon. He was a lot more intelligent than me. It, is it the same? I mean, the, the reason why I think it might be different, but of course, you know more than I do about this, so don't think I'm being arrogant about this. So I play free jazz piano, and I have no idea what's going on. In fact, this may be similar to the Freud conversation earlier and, the, and you know, the macro versus the, the, the micro and the uh, of neuroscience, but we have no idea what's going on. Why can I put, why can jazz musicians interact with each other at such speed and communicate in ways that make no sense, but are creative. I feel like I want to hold on to that and maybe I should break with that kind of nostalgia or is it possible we should use AI to analyze it the way that, you know, somebody like Feigenbaum or somebody would use AI to analyze what the brain is rather than the other way around? It's interesting you use jazz as, a, as an example. To me, it's fascinating to watch jazz players reacting to each other. Uh, and I mean, reacting in every sense, facially, uh, with their instrument and so on and so forth. Uh, and would it bother me to get an anal a cognitive analysis of this? find it very interesting, but it wouldn't stop the process. Do you ever play um, chess or any game online? Again? No, I don't play games online. I, I, I play one game, and it's only since the pandemic, and that's called uh, Rumacube. And it's a, a, an Israeli game, uh, which is a cross between Mahjong and Jin Rummy. But this is a way I can get to see my sister and brother-in-law. So we, we play this every Wednesday. In fact, after I leave you, I'm going to go play. Oh, cool. Well, I'd love to play with you. Oh, you, you find it fun. It's quite challenging. I mean, you know, because I, I don't play video games. And even though no, I'm no, from... No. Generation that I mean I guess that that does, but I do play chess and go and backgammon on online sometimes. So uh -huh. so it's a video in a sense, and I had this realization that ties into AI a bit here. Um, I I would let's say I'm playing a game of backgammon, and I'm playing against a AI. It's a computer generated whatever level of AI. I mean I'm not a good enough player to. You don't need deep mind to beat me, right? <laughs> it's not. It's not so it. special. But uh, you know. Um, but if if I'm there's no difference in my mind 
I mean, there's no difference in reality whether I'm playing a computer or whether I'm playing a human on the other end. I'll never meet that human. I'll never see that human. I'm not chatting with that human. But I feel different somehow if I'm playing the person. And I, because I know I'm playing a person, right? You're, you're choosing whether you're going to play a person. I, I'm, tr- do you think that that, first of all, that may be unique to me, but I kind of don't think so. I kind mm-hmm. of think that people like to play other people. I, how do you think that'll play out as artificial intelligence start to interact with us in places outside of gaming? My guess is we'll do both. I, I, I wouldn't dream of playing Remicube by myself with my computer. Ah, I go to see my brother and sister. Right, right. And we laugh and we have a glass of wine. Uh, you may think all I do is drink wine. but Well, you know, I'm, not, I have, I'm drinking a martini. <laughs> it's actually not. It's a martini glass from last night, but still. <laughs> hey, it's only this conversation, I might. It's only one o'clock here. Um, I'm, I'm on the East Coast. It's almost five. <laughs> uh, but it's rather like once we invented cars, did we stop running? No, we didn't. Oh, good point. In general, you feel men, men live alongside women. We live alongside AIs. It's just, you know, enriching the experience of what life is. Basically, that's how I feel. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel threatened by it. I told you the two things that worry me, and they don't worry me personally, but they worry me socially, societally. Otherwise, yeah, bring it on. It's really fun. Can you tell me a time? So you, you've been working in fiction, nonfiction. You know, you've been sort of toggling the worlds of, of these things throughout your life, right? I mean, there, this has been... Can can you give um, an example of uh, an an experience where something, you know, whether novels, short stories, something that is fictional or created, came out of um, a, a a real life experience with with a researcher? I guess say a little more about what you're. This may not be the point, but. Um, I, I know you were at the Santa Fe Institute for a while in your life. Right. And, I, you know, I spent a little while at the Santa Fe Institute and it was one of its most magical place in a way, right? Because you have, oh, very much so. you know, I mean, I, I remember having, I'm, I'm sitting there having lunch with Murray Gellman and Sam Shepard simultaneously, you know, <laughs> with one of the greatest playwrights and Nobel laureate physicists at the same time. And I thought, you know, this is a special place. And your time at, at Santa Fe Institute, for instance, was that a time that inspired some type of work outside of, you know, of the reflection on the scientific field alone? Oh, yeah. Um, I wrote two novels. Yeah. And actually, there's a third on my computer that is unfinished. Wonderful. And I may just get back to it. Now that other things have been completed, how this happened, Matthew, was my husband was a computer scientist in in complexity, and he was invited to visit the Santa Fe Institute one summer, and he brought me along to various meetings, and I was just thrilled to be there for the same reason you were. Then I went in my own right... uh, right after I had finished the book about the artist I mentioned, about Harold Cohen. 
And I realized that the Institute had invented the vocabulary that I was desperately searching for in my book on Cohen. Well, the book had just come out. I was about to rewrite it and say, oh, what I really meant was this is a complex adaptive system. <laughs> uh, no. But that's uh, what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and to make sure I really was right about that, and Murray would say, yes, at that level, it's absolutely a complex adaptive system. At a higher level, that's a little more strange. I'd have to know more about it and so on. But that was Murray. And in fact, that talks to the ethos of the Institute, which was anybody could ask any question and you would get a sensible, full answer. And I so value, valued and value that about the Institute. Yeah, no, I, I think it's such a special place. Um, do, you, do you still go to Santa Fe? No, after Joe died, I sold the Santa Fe house. We had a house there for nearly 25 years. Uh, because I thought, you know, as a widow alone, time to be near my family. And my family was here in California. So I sold the Santa Fe house, uh, bought a place here in California. And I was still going back and forth between New York and uh, California for a couple of years. And then just last year, I thought, oh, you're getting too old for this stuff. Uh, So I sold, uh, I didn't sell. I gave up my New York apartment. But, but but writing a, a novel still, uh, another Santa Fe novel still. Yeah, it's, a, it's great. unfinished on uh, my hard drive. I can't wait to I, I can't wait to read it. You know, I I, I find um, I, fi- I find this was so interesting about uh, this is that that most people in the field of artificial intelligence a huge change between when people were doing symbolic things and then so they see a huge change let's wait for the moment let's say you're not even in the field between um ibm watson and deep mind uh alpha go because you you, know, you move on to deep reinforcement learning you see this huge difference do you do you think that there had been an inflection point difference in the way that we approach AI, or is it philosophically more important that we're just seeking this? I think if you're talking about the attitude of the general public, yes, very much, very much. Uh, why aren't they thinking better? You know, how long is it going to take for a, a, a self-driving car? Come on. Whoa, that's really different, really different. And I, for one, am glad to see it. I'd love a self-driving car. Yeah, yeah, me too. I can't stand to drive myself. <laughs> I don't trust myself driving. It'll only take a little I, bit I, longer. I just before. prefer to read. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, huge difference. And uh, I'm amazed at the impatience, the public impatience with AI. What, what's holding things up? <laughs> and, oh, you know, then you have Does that bother like, you or is that good? I, I understand last week Elon Musk said it'll be better than us in five years. Well, it turns out he's got a gadget he's selling to an interface between a machine and the brain. And so he has uh, reasons for saying what he says, but I am not thinking in five years AI will take over, surpass us. Elon seems to drive you crazy. <laughs> Uh, let's just say I drive a Toyota. <laughs> People find 
different reasons to love artificial intelligence and different reasons to hate it. I gave you my bias that the only the thing, the only thing, I mean, I love it mostly, right? I mean, this is what I I care. I mean, I, I it excites me the possibilities more than anything. I gave you the thing that I don't that I worry about, which is that it'll play jazz better than humans. <laughs> and I realize how un uh, unbelievably oh, Matthew, you won't stop that playing. is. You won't stop uh, playing. But, um, but th there, there seems to be two forms of concern. Um, and I think you've addressed one of them, which is the more sort of existential concern of you know they're going to actually destroy us and maybe the male gaze addresses that a little bit as being a um, you know a male attitude towards worry of um, ai existential threat but then there's also a more pedestrian one but it does affect people is the worry about jobs and automation yeah uh, and, and what are your thoughts on this uh, i have very complicated thoughts on that because it's a complicated subject Yes, it definitely will affect jobs, but jobs have been affected with every technological change. Uh, this is not going to be that different, although it will be different in the sense that governments are going to have to deal with huge numbers of unemployed people. Now, we've got the problem in the pandemic right now. And at first, the government stepped up and poured money into uh, unemployment to the people who needed to spend it. I mean, people like me, if I got $600 a week extra, what would I do with it? I don't know, but I wouldn't spend it. Whereas it's two generations, three generations younger than me. They were grateful for it and they got out and put it back in the economy. That was great. That is just great. Now, suppose we have a universal basic income. How will that work? Uh, how might it work? That, those are things that are really going to have to be worked out. And uh, I am hopeful that it, the, this surplus will be put into improving social life. I don't mean you get to party more. I mean that people, but that's okay. That's okay. That would be fine. Yeah, people uh, enjoy partying, right? Right. We all do. We all do. That's what we miss. Yeah. Um, but that, for example, the elderly and little ones will be better looked after. The teaching will be more sensible than it has been. And so on and so on. Which, if I may, brings me to a topic where I think AI will really have an influence, and that is in the care of the elderly. Uh, <laughs> I, I took a lot of flack for something I invented called the geriatric robot. Oh, yes, please. Yes, I, I heard, but please tell everybody. <laughs> uh, I well, love this. This was invented in the 80s. I was giving a lot of talks uh, to college students, and I wanted to tell them something that would illustrate for them about how AI might work and uh, might make them laugh. So I invented the geriatric robot and I tried it out on a friend who was then in her 70s and she thought it was side splitting. A geriatric robot is a robot that takes care of you in your old age. And it doesn't just wheel you out in the sun and clean you up and feed you and all that stuff. It looks at you and it says, tell me again about that great coup you pulled off 
in 76. Tell me again about your kids, how wonderful they are, or what monsters they are. And it means it. It wants to hear again the stories you want to tell again. And the geriatric robot has no purpose in life except to serve this purpose for you. And it isn't waiting around for you to die so it can collect your money. It isn't doing this because it, ha- you know, it can't get any other job. It's a minimum wage job. It's doing, this is its purpose. And certain people thought that was the most monstrous thing they had ever heard of. I think it's wonderful. I'd have I, one. I think it's wonderful. I mean, you know, and that, I think it's wonderful because there, that's totally supplementary to what humans are. We, we, tr- we, are, we have a certain amount of empathy for each other. And, you know, we have theory of mind. We have all of these things. But in the end, we only care so much about other people's nostalgia. <laughs> yes. It's right. like, you can only go so far <laughs> in such Absolutely. a thing. I mean, Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's a wonderful use of artificial intelligence. Well, I, I took quite a bit, uh, five pages of flack about it in the New York Review of Books. And uh, it came up again fairly recently. So, in fact, I got in touch with a geriatrician at the University of uh, California in San Francisco. And I said, hey, I think it's a great idea. And what do you think? And she said, that train has left the station. We, we can't wait for something like that to come along. Uh, the problem comes in idealizing human help. And this is what I was seeing as my friends got older, that some of them were fortunate enough to have fabulous human help. And some of them had the most awful human help that you could imagine. People who came in and wanted to have the television on all day. They wanted to be on the te- their telephone when they weren't taking care of the patient and on and on. No, this is, this is a, this would be a great leap forward. Right. Humans can drive us crazy. <laughs> this particular artificial intelligence is meant to not drive us crazy when they're taking care of us. I love it. I really enjoyed this conversation so much, Pamela. Oh, Thanks for, for, you know, I always do these things in person and I find it interesting and to see possibilities in your optimism and see possibilities in what we don't have yet. I wish I was there with you. And despite us being, you know, being able to see each other, our technology is not to the level that it's st- there's still so much to be done. This isn't perfect yet. We're still long, far away from each way, other. Long way to go. I wish I was sitting there and uh, we'll, we'll get better. And we hope that things that do get there get funded in whatever way they do. Okay. But thank you so much, Pamela. I appreciate oh, my it. pleasure, Matthew.